Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Well, we are back with another exciting episode of NucleCast, and I am glad to have back for a second time on NucleCast, my good friend, Curtis McGiffin, who, as you may remember, is the founding vice president for education at the National Institute for Deterrent Studies and a visiting professor at Missouri State's Defense and strategic studies program. And so with that, I want to welcome you, welcome you into the show, Curtis. Hey, thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me back. Am I setting a record here? Am I the first repeat customer? Well, you, uh, you actually, uh, got beat by, uh, our other friend, Jonathan Trexel, who we were having a conversation and we ran out of time to actually finish it. So we, we added a second show to, to finish that. So, but we're going to talk about a totally different topic than we talked about the last time. So that's something new. Yes. So you're, you're, you're new there. And we, the first time we, we talked, we talked about the importance of education with deterrence. And now we're going to talk about integrated deterrence and some of the, just trying to help folks understand how we should conceptualize deterrence and think about it and think about how to implement it and how it works. And so with that, you and I wrote an article along with our colleagues, Christine Leah and Steve Simbala. Uh, it was called Integrated Deterrence, Grand Strategies, Poor Cousin, that appeared in Real Clear Defense earlier this week. And we were offered some criticism of integrated deterrence as a concept and some criticism of the nuclear posture review. And part of our argument was that integrated deterrence as it's conceived of now is very expansive and it would by definition meet the criteria of a grand strategy. Now, not everybody's going to agree with us. Certainly folks don't. Some of our own folks uh, that we work with don't necessarily agree, but I wanted to talk about that and then help to sort of bound and define what is deterrence. So as you think about integrated deterrence, how, how do you see it? Well, Adam, um, before I share how I see it, let me just for the, for the audience share, uh, you know, sort of the, the definition, if you will, and this is pulled from the 2022 uh, National Defense Strategy fact sheet uh, on integrated deterrence. You can pull this off of uh, the Internet just as easily as I did. And it says here that integrated deterrence is weaving together cutting edge technology, operational concepts and state of the art capabilities alongside interagency counterparts 
and allies and partners to dissuade aggression. So what integrated deterrence seems to be emphasizing in this de definition is all of its means, all of the things that make up integrated deterrence, but it doesn't actually talk about its ways in how that it would work together to perform what end? Is integrated deterrence an end in and of itself? Because it shouldn't be. The integrated deterrence or deterrence writ large is really a ways to meet a, an end, a desired end state, which usually supports your national interests. In this case, I would always envision it to be peace or a state of not being at war. Others will say that deterrence is really just about maintaining the status quo. That that's, is true. That's kind of my argument. Yeah, and that is true. I always say status quo to our benefit. Sure. And that caveat means you've got to do something proactively or continue to do proactive things to maintain or at least identify what your benefit is. So integrated deterrence is, in my mind's eye, um, um, a very uh, um, convenient binning of things that, that make up deterrence and grand strategy in the long term, sort of, um, you know, sort of neatly packaged into a, def a, a, def uh, a defense document, which is ironic because integrated deterrence really requires, or, or I should say, acknowledges the requirement of this sort of whole of government effort. Uh, certainly, it is not the Pentagon that's going to execute economic sanctions. It's certainly not the Pentagon that's going to execute diplomatic demarches or uh, negotiations or 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 any sort Treaties of or uh, anything these else, sorts yeah. of things. Those are other interagencies. So the question then is: is why is it why is it only housed in the uh, in the well, it is in the in the national security strategy. So I, I give the administration credit there for that, I, and that's probably the most appropriate place for it to be. But I guess we'll know more when we see what the Department of State's um, plan will be to execute their portion of integrated deterrence. What the Department of of um, the uh, Treasury. Treasury will do yeah. to integrate its portion of that. I'm waiting for those documents. They might be out. I haven't seen them yet. I mean, there's components that would include the Department of Homeland Security. There's, I mean, labor, uh, commerce. I mean, all of all of these departments. You know, if you if you really read what the description of of integrated deterrence is talking about, it in, it incorporates sort of all of these. And my challenge with it is maybe I'm sort of uh, stuck. I wouldn't, I would, maybe I'm stuck in the Cold War because that's a common refrain for the disarmament community. Anytime you disagree with them, you're stuck in the Cold War. But <laughs> for me, deterrence uh, ha has a, a much narrower meaning. And the reason I like narrower meaning meanings for things is that they're, they're definable and they're measurable and you can determine whether you're achieving them or not. And whereas when you throw everything, including the kitchen sink into it, it gets hard to, to understand whether you're actually doing it or not to measure success. 
And so, you know, my take is that it's, it's too broad and expansive to have a useful meaning. Well, Adam, I think that's an interesting perspective and I, and I don't disagree with you at all. Uh, I, I think to add to that, to your point, if, if you're going to broaden the definition, if you will, or the implication or the application, uh, through the terminology and uh, desire of integrated deterrence. Um, if you look at the national security strategy, there's a nice little integrated chart on page 22 of the strategy that sort of lists out in a box. It's boxed out, yep. uh, you know, sort of some more definitions and these sorts of things. One of the statements is, is integrated deterrence requires us, presumably the United States, uh, to more effectively coordinate, network, and innovate so that any competitor thinking about pressing for advantage in one domain understands that we can respond in and many others as well. So this effective coordination, uh, again, goes back to if we're going to have an integrated deterrence uh, mechanism uh, within uh, the United States government, um, you, you've got to ask who's in charge of that, right? It, it, maybe it's the president himself. Um, you know, when I was on active duty, we never thought of our general as being the integrator of anything, right? <laughs> uh, that was what the staff was supposed to do. There was somebody in charge of this or that. Maybe there was a department head or something. So, you know, maybe there should be an integrated deterrence czar, uh, or, or something along those lines that sort of, Make sure all the interagencies are coordinating um, and networking and innovating um, appropriately in order to create a deterrence effect um, that that uh, that America is seeking uh, seeking uh, to get after. You, I mean, you bring up a good point. Although, uh, given our track record for czars, they they they, <laughs> they tend not to be all that effective. Uh, I.e., the drugs are. His thirty year, his her thirty year campaign to end uh, <laughs> the drug war has not been so successful. I can't think of a successful czar, but uh, I I agree with you that we need we need some way because in in reality, if, I, I was thinking about U.S. Strategic Command and how inappropriate that name is today when U.S. Stratcom was nuclear. Cyber, space, it, it's, it, it was really actually was kind of a strategic command. But now that it doesn't own space and it doesn't own cyber, it's just U.S. nuclear command. That's, that's what it is these days. So, I mean, perhaps we should rename it so that it better fits what it actually is. But as you think about these big, broad, expansive, we talk about intergovernmental efforts and all that. We don't have the best track record with those because, you know, it's, it's sort of Graham Allison, his take on the Cuban missile crisis. And, and part of that was a look at, you know, how intergovernmental agencies or government agencies looked at it very differently and acted within their own bureaucratic interests and constraints. And so I, I wonder if you build these ideas too big and too broad do they become impossible to actually employ effectively? Well, Adam, you know, again, I, I, you bring up a great point in that 
when you when you create this this new thing called integrated deterrence, you, necess, you, you necessarily complicate it, right? Because now we've we're going to take this large U.S. bureaucracy, this large government, and expect it to work uh, together and in, in, in coordination yet again on a, on something that is is so important as to averting war um, that it becomes um, it becomes something that that is easily uh, consumed by the by the issues of the day, the politics of the of the month. Uh, and, and so forth. And so I think that when your know, deterrence works best, I think when it's simple, uh, and, and clearly articulated and, um, and clearly executed. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that I, I think is interesting, but on the department of defense side here, you, you brought up that whether or not STRATCOM is the right terminology for, or the title for this organization anymore. And that's an interesting conversation to have. Um, I also think about, you know, the, for years, uh, the air force has concerned, can called, uh, what they do in this war, in this side is NDO nuclear deterrence operations. And I, I've always been fascinated by this term. Words fascinate me, uh, and, and this one particular because it, it's it's probably the most inaccurate terminology that we could use. Because even Air Force doctrine says that deterrence is an effect, not an operation. It is something that you seek to achieve. And so, really, what they uh, if you're doing things like being on alert or moving a bomber task force or 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 showing a force or threatening a sanction or something like that, you're not necessarily uh, conducting a nuclear deterrence operation. You're actually conducting an, a, an op, a nuclear operation for deterrence when you're talking about for deterrence. So maybe it ought to be called a nod uh, mm -hmm. or, or something like that. Uh, but in the end, you're really looking at it and creating an effect. So these words mean things. And so when we think about integrated deterrence, what does that word mean, if you will? How does that change things? Is it changing the def the very definition? Uh, and is it the purpose to do that? Uh, the NSS, you know, can, uh, and the NDS, you know, talks about the desire to rely less on our nuclear deterrent um, as part of our national security strategy. This is a carryover from, from the Obama-Biden administration uh, and their 2010 uh, uh, nuclear posture review and national uh, defense strategies and so forth. Um, and so is, it, is that what it is? Because there are some folks out there who believe that integrated deterrence is really nothing more than a, than an effort to to call deterrence something else so that we don't have to rely on our nuclear weapons what do you think about that adam is that an accurate description i mean my um, my take is uh, in some respects i agree with congressman gallagher who as we both know is made made you know sort of similar statements in testimony with dod senior leaders and i i guess part of my problem with the way I think we're conceiving deterrence is that take nuclear or take conventional. I would never say that the desired outcome should be deterrence. What I, my submission would be that the desired outcome should be victory in war. 
and that by virtue of being successful and being prepared to win a war, you therefore deter your adversary from ever seeking one. And so when you put deterrence as the highest aim, you demin- I actually think you diminish your ability to achieve it because your focus is not on actually winning because the, the, the ability to win and to convincingly demonstrate to your adversary that you will win and they will lose that achieves deterrence. And so I, that that's part of my challenge with sort of deterrence as a strategy where it's the, where it's the end is that when you, make it the highest end, you don't actually achieve it because you diminish your ability to demonstrate to your adversary that you'll beat them. And beating them and showing that has to be the highest end. So uh, no doubt. And it's a fascinating uh, way to state that. I'm going to offer to carry your thought a little bit differently here in that what is it that makes them uh, realize that they're going, that they can't win, right? It's that cost benefit. It's that, it's that fear of losing, right? It's that because deterrence is a perception of the adversary. As I always tell my students, deterrence occurs between the ears of the adversary. Absolutely. You don't get to project onto the adversary what deters them. They have to decide what deters them. But we have to offer a menu, if you will, of capabilities um, at, to create that fear to attack. You know, people always say, what is your, we always ask me, what is my favorite definition of deterrence? You can find a hundred different definitions of deterrence. My favorite actually comes from Dr. Strangelove. Uh, you know, it's that, uh, that, that, that presenting in the mind of the adversary, the fear to attack. Can now, but can you offer that definition with an appropriate German accent. That no, I can't. I can, I can uh, really German feel your strange love. <laughs> my, my German accent is terrible. Uh, but it is, a, it is a, a Stanley Kubrick who I guess wrote and directed the movie. Uh, you know, fantastic definition. It is the mind of the fear to attack. Not the fear of attack or the fear from attack. It's the fear to attack. I am afraid to attack you because of what you might do in response. That it would be so devastating that I... That risk, that juice is not worth the squeeze that I cannot win, as you said before. So therefore, I must not fight. And therefore, peace uh, is, you know, remains, for lack of a better peace, in my definition, is the lack of conflict, at least at a level um, uh, uh, that you might um, uh, find unacceptable. Uh, America has been very accepting of small wars and these sorts of things. And, uh, and, and whatnot, but, but at the grand level, at the, at the, you know, the, the great power war level, uh, that peace has been achieved now for 75 plus years, uh, thanks to the nuclear deterrent and the creation of the fear, uh, creation and maintenance of the fear to attack. Yeah, I, I've got to agree. But before we move on with this discussion, it's mm-hmm. time for a quick break. You okay. are listening to Nuclecast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have Curtis McGiffin, and we'll be right back.
This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit. Come join NucleCast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeterred.org slash NucleCast. And we're back and we're talking about deterrence, integrated deterrence. How should we understand it? What are its strengths and weaknesses? Now, one of the things that, that I've been thinking about is uh, I, I've always liked cross-domain deterrence. And Brad Roberts and the folks out at CGSR at Livermore did some work on this of, um, four, five, six years back. And integrated deter, or sorry, uh, cross-domain deterrence makes a lot of sense because let's say you have an adversary who may not have nuclear weapons, but they are really good at cyber and space, for example. And if you could take out PNT satellites, you know, the GPS network, position, navigation, and timing, because if you understood U.S. dependence on PNT, it could essentially bring our society to a standstill. I mean, ATMs wouldn't work. Uh, power transmission is totally dependent upon PNT. There are so many things that are dependent upon it. And it would be a catastrophic loss for society if we lost it through an attack on those space assets. So, would it be appropriate to say, if you do this, we will then nuke you because of the, you know, the devastating results of your actions? That's cross-domain deterrence. To me, something like that makes complete sense. And so when we think about the Chinese, and I'm, I'm reading Rob Spaulding has a new book out. Uh, I can't think of the name. Every time I try to think of the name, I forget it. But it is essentially him analyzing unrestricted warfare, which was it was the two Chinese colonels that wrote it. They talked about China's strategy in the future. And if you look now, that essentially plan that they laid out is being realized by China. And they talk about informatized warfare. They, you know, they talk about attacking the U.S. It's in its weaknesses and that it's not a direct on, you know, air power versus air power, sea power versus sea power. It's, it's all of the many things that both they and the Russians are doing because they both know they can't defeat us in, you know, a great air battle or a naval battle. And so I wonder for us, do we, you know, we talk about integrated deterrence as all, you know, all means economic and whatever. But in reality, should we not, instead of saying we're going to rely less on nuclear weapons, should we not take our advantages and use those 
to try to demonstrate that if you do these other things, we will still defeat you and the costs will be greater. And therefore, this idea that, you know, if you do economic, if you do military things or space things, or we're, we're going to try to deter you with sanctions or all of these other things that don't have a good track record. What has a good track record is nuclear threats. They actually have a really good track record. Well, you know, so I think here's where I differ from many of the deterrence, the great deterrence thinkers out there um, in that I'm a very much a nuclear deterrence maximalist, if you will, um, because I'm a I'm really an anti-war person. I'm a pro pro global peace and stability guy, and I'm one of those who believes that nuclear deterrence is what provides all of that. But with that being said, if you drop the threshold of your deterrence threat, if you lower it and uh, uh, into these areas such as where integrated deterrence wants to be the utilization of economic threats and conventional threats and these sorts of things, you are essentially uh, taking away or reducing that fear factor. And what you could very well say is, is that I'm, I'm willing to fight you and go to war with you and and have a prolonged war and and you you look at the ukraine crisis for example you know putin believed he was going to take ukraine in you know three to five days we're now going to go on a year and uh, it's been a devastating conflict for both sides and so when we think about how we're going to change that perspective we always have to ask the question then what right and that's the thing about the if you if you don't produce enough fear of destruction and risk like you can with nuclear weapons and a full commitment with, with real clear resolve um, um, to do it, uh, then, then, you, then you, you, you raise the threshold for conventional war. And, uh, and then, then you have the, the what's next. What is it going to cost America, uh, the Western powers, Western Europe, so forth, to rebuild the Ukraine when it's all over with? Because Russia's not going to do it. Yeah, you, and and there's there's no amount of sanctioning that's going to happen, and so the idea is is that you want your deterrent, i.e., your nuclear deterrent, to be as capable across the spectrum of conflict as you can possibly have to avoid the spectrum of conflict. And that's my point is is that I don't want to fight these wars, and so I've got to acknowledge the different ways in which I'm being attacked, quote unquote. All right. And how can I, uh, uh, as a nation, work through these? And so an across-domain deterrence concept, which I think I, I agree with you, is brilliant. We saw this in the 2018 NPR under the Trump administration, where there is actually a statement in there that says, hey, a non-nuclear strategic attack could result, could result, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, in a nuclear response. So you could say a massive cyber attack on the United States that is so crippling and so devastating uh, could well be responded to with a nuclear retaliation. Um, and so that idea, and, and that is sort of baked into the integrated deterrence cake, if you will. You can see it on that chart on page 22 of the NSS. The first bullet in there is integrated across domains. That is essentially cross-domain deterrence. But... Um, 
But as it seeks to do other things, one of the things it talks about is integrated across the spectrum of conflict. And so here's where I think we get dangerous in that I think I mentioned this in our last Nuclecast. I'm not interested in making conventional warfare great again. I want to see less of that, right? Because you can see the death and destruction that's going on in Ukraine as an example. Imagine what that will be on the island of, of Taiwan should that ever, should that uh, repatriation, if you will, or whatever they want to call it, uh, uh, attack on Taiwan ever occur. Uh, it would just be devastating to the populations on both sides. And so I, I think that uh, that we have to work and create our and, and formulate our deterrent in order to uh, to prevent those sorts of things from happening, lowering those thresholds and our resolve to go to the highest level uh, in my mind's eye creates a greater possibility for war, not a not uh, not the opposite, not a not a lesser opportunity. for war. Well, let me sort of follow up on that, because as I've been envisioning it. When you rely on these other elements of national power, economic and di diplomatic and information, you're muddying the picture in the mind of an adversary leader. So that adversary leader who's contemplating whether to take an action or not and whether he's going to suffer significant or devastating consequences when he's mostly trying to complicate, okay, what are the, what are the results of economic sanctions? Is that bad? Is that not bad? How much is that going to hurt? Oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to use resolutions in, you know, the United Nations and they're going to try to kick me out of WTO or they're, you know, all these, you know, other things they are going to stop buying natural gas or whatever, and and you create a very complex and uncertain picture for that that leader who's trying to contemplate it. And that uncertainty, I would say, does not breed the kinds of decisions that we want. Because if you look historically, whereas nuclear, he says, my country's going to be devastated and laid waste. Okay, I know what that looks like. So that's a very clear picture. All this other we call that the crystal ball effect, right? Yeah, and and if you think historically, so we defeat Saddam Hussein in 1991, but then a decade later, he chooses he gets an ultimatum from the U.S. and then he chooses to stay and fight after he's already been the case study for what American capabilities are. Because we allowed him to think, well, you know what, if I if I kill enough Americans, if I drag this out enough, they'll go home. So we gave him the, enough, and I think this goes back to prospect theory, but we gave him enough ability to think, you know, the results might not be that bad. And we did that for Slobodan Milosevic, and we did that for... You know, the Somali war, Muhammad Farah Idid, and, you know, the example after example. Whereas whenever you make a, a nuclear threat, there's a very clear picture. And so I'm concerned that integrated deterrence muddles the threats to the mm -hmm. point that an adversary leader making that decision says, eh, I, 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 I'll probably suffer something, but I think I can pull this off. 
You're absolutely right. Uh, autocrats <clears throat> don't fear um, you know, the death of a thousand paper cuts that you can get through economic sanction threats, diplomatic sanction threats, um, technology controls, and these sorts of things that we often don't always carry out to the end, right? And if we're going to rely on allies and partners, but those allies and partners are dependent upon that adversary for their very lifeblood of energy, for example, that can cause a problem. How do you economically threaten a China that is our number one trading partner? Um, and, and they so think they the, can actually beat us in a conflict. That's right. And they think they can outlast those things. And so that makes these threats less credible. And then that makes the, the potential for the conflict that you're trying to deter to actually happen anyway. And we saw this in the Ukraine. There weren't, wasn't enough. It didn't scare enough. Putin was not, was felt he was prepared and that he would outlast the sanctions. He'd already been under sanctions since Crimea's invasion in 2014. There just wasn't the fear created by that integrated threat. And is to say if there isn't a place for integrated deterrence and the tools within it. Absolutely. But you've got to understand, how do you integrate it within a, within a large government? How do you coordinate it with allies who might be dependent upon the very source you're trying to sanction? How do you tailor it to different adversaries? What threatens Putin may not necessarily threaten Z. How do you convey and, and communicate any fear in those things? And how do you how do you enact any sort of escalation ladder when all of your threats are soft power issued threats versus hard power issued threats? Those are challenges I think integrated deterrence still needs to look at. Yeah, I think you're hundred percent right. But unfortunately, we are out of time as always. Oh no! Time, this is time. the fastest half hour in the world. I know that's that's one of the that's our tagline for Nuclecast, the fastest half hour in the world. So uh, we'll we'll have Kim, our producer, we'll have her start adding that fastest half hour in the world. There you go. So uh, unfortunately, though, we are out of time. It was a great talk. I, I enjoyed it. it. And it always brings to mind new ideas and new ways to think about it. You always that's one thing you've always done for me, Curtis, is spur my thinking into new areas. So I appreciate well, that. Adam, you're always too kind to me. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the folks at Nuclecast for inviting me back. Uh, and uh, I really do look forward to uh, to sharing these ideas. And, and, of course, my work with you and beyond is is, uh, is always a, a great opportunity and a learning lesson for me uh, as, as I continue to grow in this space. But let me tell you, uh, it's it's just a great opportunity. Uh, what you guys are doing is 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 great work. This is information that the American people need to understand, that the world needs to understand, because I believe nuclear weapons equal world peace. Not and if we if you have a disarmament type of idea, then you, it goes the opposite direction. And I don't think we need that right now. <laughs> no, we, we we don't have a great track record lately. No, we don't. All right. Well, thanks to all the listeners for enjoying the show with me today. Hopefully uh, you learned something. And of course, we will look forward to having you listen to the next episode of NucleCast. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. 
Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.